From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. The Gift of Life Donor Program in Philadelphia continues to lead the U.S. in life-saving organ donations. We'll hear from a donor family as well as a lung recipient and learn more about the life-saving work of Gift of Life. I see them coming from like a really bad place to like a really great place. And it's because of this organization. They can still talk about their loved one. Charity Howard sits down with a local entrepreneur and advocate for justice and environmentalism. People, particularly black folk, were using garments as a mechanism for telling a new story about their observations about their own experience. That's coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. The Gift of Life donor program in Philadelphia continues to lead the U.S. in life-saving organ donations for 15 straight years. They coordinated the most organ donors with 690 in 2022. That's the most in the United States since 2008. Gift of Life has also transplanted the most organs, 1,744 to be exact, the most since 2022 in the United States. And we won't stop there. They are also responsible for the most kidney transplants in U.S. history. Many impressive milestones have been reached. And here with me in studio is Rick Haas, president and CEO of Gift of Life. Also joining Rick is Marquita Lewis. Her 13-year-old son in 2014 suffered a fatal asthma attack, and he was able to give life to three young men who received his kidneys, liver, and heart. Also, Tamar Ellensworth is here with us as well. More than a decade ago, she was diagnosed with sarcoidosis, and she was a recipient of a set of lungs from a donor. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And of course, full disclosure, Gift of Life Donor Program is a sponsor of Bridging Philly. Rick, first of all, these as I said before, are quite impressive milestones. Tell me about the work that's done at Gift of Life Donor Program and how important it is to have something like this in our area where people are given second chances at life. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's, you know, the work that we do every day is really trying to bridge that gap between the number of patients who are awaiting transplant uh, and then the number who are successfully transplanted. Even with all the success that you touted, uh, there are still over 5,000 men, women, and children in our area who are awaiting a transplant, and over 100,000 uh, nationally. So the records that you hear are awesome, but you know our vision uh, is that um, one day that we have enough donors uh, that no one dies waiting for a transplant. Yeah. What are the most common organs that are donated? Yeah, the most common organ that's donated is your kidneys, right? You have two kidneys, and um, the number of patients who are waiting, about 80% are waiting for a kidney. Patients who have end-stage renal disease uh, and are really tethered to a dialysis machine three to four days a week. Um, In the United States, there's over a half a million people uh, with end-stage kidney disease, uh, and only a small percentage actually get a transplant. Well, you know... I know that in the community there are some myths, and I, and I wanted to go over that with you and, and hopefully have you dispel some of the myths. People who may not want to declare that they're an organ donor 
uh, or don't want it indicated because they think somehow they're not going to be saved in an emergency. The hospital somehow is not going to save them because there's someone waiting for an organ. Talk about these myths that exist when it comes to organ donations. Yeah, there's a lot of different myths uh, surrounding organ donation. And I think you hit upon really the number one myth that I won't be taken care of if I have that driver's license designation placed on my license. Uh, We know uh, in talking to the public, over 90% of the people when asked the question, uh, do you support donation, would say yes. And yet we also know that here in Pennsylvania, only 50% of eligible drivers have actually indicated on their driver's license that organ donor designation. So we know there's a gap for people who want to donate and that people who have indicated it. And sometimes it's around these myths that I'm going to come into the emergency department uh, and the team that's taking care of me is not going to do everything they can uh, to save my life because they're only interested in the organs. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, There are really two separate teams involved and everyone in the emergency department is focused on one thing and that's saving your life. And it's only after uh, that all efforts have been made uh, and you've been declared dead will that call go to gift of life. Now, in a case of a tragedy where there is a person that can't speak for themselves and things are looking pretty grim, the family is approached about organ donation in hospitals? Does that work that way sometimes? Yeah. So um, we get a call at or near the time uh, when someone dies in the hospital. And our staff, our trained coordinators who are really like the first responders uh, in donation travel out to the hospital to meet with families on their worst day Yeah. Um, soon after they got the news that their loved one died. Um, and they're specially trained to have those conversations to help shepherd a family through that and be able to see the good that can come out of it. Uh, and that's a, you know, really a testament um, to these families, but also a testament to our staff who really meets families where they're at. Marquita, let's talk about your son who was able to uh, help three young men uh, in the midst of tragedy. Talk about that day in the hospital, that day that your son had that fatal asthma attack. Talk about that first, if you could. Well, May 31st, 2014, Marquise had an asthma attack and went into cardiac arrest. I remember getting the call, Marquise is in the hospital, his asthma, and I'm just like, okay, he's been fighting asthma since he was born. So it really didn't dawn on me that it was going to be that bad until they said they were medevacing him from Abington to CHOP. And then I said, well, that can't be good. So I'm sitting at CHOP waiting and waiting and waiting, and here he comes hooked up to all these machines, and I'm just like, whoa, this is not looking good. We waited around for a while. Um, The doctors came out and said they wanted to do some brain testing. Um, I'm sorry. And in doing that, they told me Marquise was brain dead. Um, And in breaking one of the myths, his dad was in that ambulance while those guys were doing CPR on him. I was at that hospital. I mean, I had them drop everything but the roof of chop on his head to make sure, you know, he was brain dead. And after about four days, you know, I came to grips that this is what was happening. And I looked at my aunt and I said, do you know anything about organ donation? You know, I'll check yes on my license, but I don't really know much about it. 
I figure I'll die and somebody can use my great heart and these beautiful eyes. Mm-hmm. So she said, that would be awesome. Let's talk to the nurse. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I got my nurse and I asked them, you know, how can we do organ donation? And they started crying. So now I'm like, what is going on? Because they really couldn't believe at my worst time of my life, I was thinking about other people. But that's just who I am. You know, my mom raised me, you know, very well. Put other people first and you can live a long life. Say yes to organ donation. And it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Not only did Marquise save three lives, the gift of life saved me. Why do you say that? Why do you say they saved you? It's such a great organization. I really thought I would donate Marquise's organs, and that was it. I did my civil duty, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I would keep it moving. These guys call me. They reach out. They give you an opportunity to talk about your loved one. I mean, the support with this organization is unbelievable. It's coming up on nine years, and I can really sit and smile every day because I have this awesome organization behind me, giving me a chance to keep Marquis' legacy alive. I mean, he was only 13, so I really don't have much, but they give me a chance to go out into my community to talk to my people about how important it is. Hmm. You know, we're the ones that are overweight. We're the ones suffering from diabetes, but we're the ones that don't want to get educated on how important organ donation is. Um, and that's one of the reasons I started doing my volunteering with Gift of Life, you mm-hmm. know, I see how awesome they are. Um, I'm lucky enough to sit um, the chairperson of a group called the Hearts of Gold, where it's all donor families. So we meet once a month. And, you know, I get to talk to these families. And, you know, I see them coming from, like, a really bad place to, like, a really great place. And it's because of this organization. They can still talk about their loved one. Um, And that's a lot. You know, that means a lot to people. You have people who loved ones pass and they just have nothing. You know, they have to just grieve and pain. Yeah, yeah. Where we don't have to do this at this organization. So that's why I say Marquis saved three lives, but the gift of life saved me. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. You hear donating an organ or receiving an organ, it all sounds so clinical and it all sounds, you know, it doesn't sound like there's any kind of empathy or any kind of feelings behind it, but it sounds as though Gift of Life Donor Program really supports the families at their darkest moment. Yeah, we uh, were honored and really privileged to be able to work with families at that time and, and help them through it. But for us, you know, donation, that event um, is hopefully just the beginning. You know, it's kind of a, a pebble uh, thrown into the lake and it causes this ripple effect, mm-hmm. right? It has an immediate effect potentially on eight people who receive organ transplants from a donor or the hundred people who might receive tissue transplants. But it has an effect on, you know, their families. Uh, it has effect on the, the families who said yes to donation mm-hmm. and the legacy that they're able to keep uh, for their loved one. And the families are grieving. So Marquita, Gift of Life Donor Program, they were able to help you through your grieving as well? Still nine years later, I can still go to family support and sit on her couch with anything. And this is why this organization is so awesome. You have some places that will give you two months, one year of counseling, Mm. not this organization. As long as you want it, you can reach out to them and there's an available couch to sit on and talk to someone, or even just one of their staff members. You know, they're all awesome to sit and talk to. 
You were able to meet the three young men that received your son's organs, Marquita? Yes. Tell me about that. So I like to call myself a proud donor mom because I have three families that are so awesome and three young men carrying my son's legacy. So I like to call myself a proud donor mom. Well, the gift of life gives you a chance to write your um, the recipients and donors to write each other. Mm-hmm. Um, my, his heart recipient, Noah's family, wrote us right away, maybe about a month after. And one of the best things to see was how this young man was doing so much better after suffering so long for 13 years waiting for his heart. Um, now that he has the best heart in the whole wide world, he's in his first year in college. He's playing football. He's playing basketball. You know, he's just doing everything an 18-year-old should be doing. And that brings a smile to my face. His other kidney recipient is doing awesome. He's in ninth grade. Wow. He was born with a lot of um, medical problems, but since he has the best kidney in the world, <laughs> he's doing awesome. His other recipient, Go Figure, is from Baltimore, Maryland, and my son was a Ravens fan. Oh, wow. <laughs> so to know that one of his kidneys and his liver went to Baltimore, you know, that really made me smile. And this young man's getting ready to graduate high school. Um, I remember receiving the first letter, and the mom said all he wanted to do was be a Boy Scout, but he couldn't. Because, you know, when you need a liver, it's hard to be outside and the sun and all his complications. And just to now receive letters of all the great things he's doing at Boy Scouts. He's a volunteer firefighter. I mean, wow. these young men are They're thriving, thriving yeah. with their gift. And that, as a donor family, makes me happy when I see recipients doing everything they should be and enjoying their second chance at life. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we're only supposed to have one. And if you're lucky enough to get a second chance of life, do everything you can and make that, that donor proud. Tamar, you are here, of course, as living proof, as a donor recipient yourself. Um, I know that you did receive a set of lungs. Yes. Talk to us about your diagnosis, sarcoidosis. That that's something that a lot of people don't know about. What exactly is sarcoidosis? I had pulmonary sarcoidosis, and so sarcoidosis is an autoimmune disease, and it can affect any part of the body. Mine affected my lungs. Mm -hmm. I actually have a relative who has it in her eyes. So your lungs just keep collecting the scar tissue, and they get hard until the point where they honeycomb, and you can't breathe. So I, I got it in 1998. How long did you... Well, first of all, when did you know that you actually needed a lung transplant? What was that like? And how long did you actually have to wait? I was surviving with sarcoidosis for quite some time. Up until, I guess, was it 2003, started to go down a little bit, losing my lung function. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I went away. I went up into the mountains, and, and I came back home. My lung collapsed. And when I came home and my lung collapsed, my doctor said, well, Tamar, you're going to have to be on oxygen and you're definitely going to need a transplant. And at the time, I was 262 pounds. So while I was going to need a transplant, I didn't qualify for one. However, she told me that um, if I lost the weight, they would transplant me. Hmm. And she told me I had two years. So I transplanted in 2009, but this happened in 2007. My son had just graduated from high school And uh, I wasn't able to make the graduation because I was in the hospital with the collapsed lung. And so for the next two years, it was just a matter of keeping myself stabilized on oxygen, 
I was on oxygen 24-7 and um, maintaining myself and getting the weight off. Right. So I had to fight through that, but I successfully lost the weight and made it just in time for the transplant. So tell me about that moment when you learned that there was a donor, a lung donor, ready for you. Well, to be honest, I didn't want a lung transplant. Um, my doctors got me on the list. They you know, talked to me about getting on the list. And I was in respiratory failure at work. I was so determined to go to work every day because my son was in college. And I was in respiratory failure. I didn't know it. I just knew something was different. I could no longer walk across the corridor with my oxygen. And I called my doctor, and she said, well, Thursday you come in and meet the new CT doctor. So they rolled me up, and um, they did an assessment. And um, at the time, I wasn't active on the list. Even though I let them list me, and my number was very, my score was very low. I wasn't active. And, of course, they made me active on the list, and I was the second high in the nation, highest in the nation because the lungs were gone. I had to wait for a set of lungs, and I ended up being put on ECMO, which is a form of life support to wait for the lungs. I was Temple's uh, first ambulatory ECMO patient because they could not put me to sleep while they put me on the life support system. Okay. And I was on ECMO from uh, August the 28th until September the 6th when I transplant. And we had one dry run. Uh, the lungs were no good. But the second one, the doctor said, these lungs are pink. Uh, they were in a car accident. I'm not crazy about them, but we're running out of time on ECMO. So I got the transplant that night. My respiratory team prayed over me, and wow, that was it. Wow. And you're doing great. Yes. Great. That's awesome. These are amazing stories, Rick, and this is what it's all about. How long does Gift of Life work with um, donor families and recipients? Sure. We work with them uh, as soon as they are approached about donation and, and until um, they want our services no longer. Uh, we routinely follow up with them with a letter about the donation. Uh, we have uh, specialized counselors, social workers available to them to counsel them uh, throughout their grief process and grief journey. Um, we're with them until they no longer uh, want or need our services. Uh, and in terms of transplant recipients, uh, we have built uh, Howie's House, which is a um, Ronald McDonald-like house for patients okay. and their families who are awaiting transplantation here in the Philadelphia area. Marquita and Tamar, if you can both tell me, why should people donate their organs? It saves lives. Bottom line, it just yeah. saves lives. My one thing is that people should get educated. And that's why, you know, I'm out in our community talking to whoever I can talk to, your church, your schools, people on the bus, people walking down the street, whoever I can talk to to help educate on how important it is. So the one thing that I love doing is going out to the high schools and talking to the 11th and 12th graders who are going to get ready to get their driver's license, educate them about organ donation so that when they go get their license, they can have an educated yes or no. Right. So education about organ donation is key to why I'm involved with Gift of Life. Okay. Tamar? Uh, as great as my story is, it's nothing without a donor. And so living as an African-American in an African-American community where so many people have high blood pressure, sugar diabetes, uh, all kinds of diseases, we are not as likely to be listed as a donor for fear. And I like to 
speak to people about that fear and debunk the myths if I can. Right. To let them know, like, for instance, I've been asked, like, don't you know people get snatched off the street and they can take your, harvest your lungs? And I said, I waited for nine to 10 days for a match. Right. It's not that easy. And like Rick said, size, like someone's 6'3", if they were a match, I could not get them. I'm 5'3". And there's so many other variables that people are unaware of. And until they talk to someone that's actually had a transplant, mm-hmm. I don't really think they can, you know, work it out in their brains, like all the myriad of information that's out there and um, what they should look for if they really wanted to be involved. And Rick, is there a specific uh, educational push in communities of color in regards to organ donation? Yeah, absolutely. We know right now that 45% of the patients who are waiting for kidney transplants uh, in our area are African-American. And so there's a huge need uh, in the community. Um, And it's really a neighbor helping neighbor kind of situation, right? In terms of being able to say yes to donation, uh, there's a large proportion of patients uh, who will be benefiting uh, from that. All right. Well, how can everyone learn more about the work of Gift of Life and organ donations? Feel free to go to our website, www.donorsthenumber1.org. All right. Simple enough. Well, we've been talking with the Gift of Life donor program, Rick Haas, president and CEO of Gift of Life, donor mom, Marquita Lewis, and donor recipient, Tamar Ellensworth. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and continued success and bless all of you for everything that you've done and continued recovery. And you, you, you're doing great, Tamar. This is just wonderful to see you. And of course, you and what you've been doing, uh, educating people, Marquita, continued success with that as well. Thank you so much, Ms. William. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. Fashion meets history. Sharaday Howard takes a peek into the past with Kimberly McGlon. Our newsmaker this week is Dr. Kimberly McGlon, founder of both Grant Boulevard and her new venture, Black Ivy in West Philly. In addition to being an entrepreneur, she's an advocate for justice and environmentalism. She says that advocacy is informed by her fashion and her purpose. Black Ivy is intended to be an extension of that purpose. There she wants to create stylish, sustainably sourced fashion that reduces waste while also acting as a pathway to connecting community, history, and encouraging greater cultural awareness and conversations. Conversations about Black culture and how all of these things can be positively impacted by her work. Welcome, Kim, to Bridging Philly. Hello, I'm so happy to be with you. So let's talk Black Ivy. What is it and what are its origins? So Black Ivy is a first of its kind, new intersection for fashion in that it aspires to offer a really thoughtful curation of vintage fashion and thrift fashion and lifestyle pieces like rare vinyl as a way of ultimately telling a story through garments of the civil rights movement. So we're going to trace the journey between 1954 in America, which is Brown versus Board of Education, through 1972 when Shirley Chisholm first runs for president as the first black female candidate. And we're going to do it through really paying attention to how people, particularly black folk, were using garments as a mechanism for telling a new story about their observations about their own experience, fully in conversation with what their reality was. Why is this such a powerful piece, not only personally, but for the community? You know, 
this thinking about what we wear and the stories that we tell with what we wear, how our garments are a canvas of our feelings, but also of our positions is one that I think we as Americans have learned to take advantage of. You know, we really are so disconnected from our makers at large that we don't understand where their clothes are made. We are not always using our clothing options, thinking about who we shop with and why as another way of communicating our values. And so, you know, I'm really excited to just try to still bring together diverse coalition. You know, when people come into Black Ivy at 36 in Lancaster, they're going to walk into a living room that recreates a, a mid-century modern, you know, moment. And they'll see artifacts from the era. There's a 1959 Remington typewriter on display in pristine condition. They'll see ice buckets from the era and books about activism and, and garments that we still wear today, like denim and tweed and turtlenecks and t-shirts that became popular in American fashion in the 1950s and 60s that are still part of our closets. And then they'll see some really rare archival vintage pieces that are for sale as well. That, that idea of bringing back to life, of reviving the spirit of the civil rights movement through what we wear. You're speaking out loud and you're speaking for the community. Can you tell me more about that? You know, I was a classroom teacher for 20 years and I taught about disenfranchisement in the American story to high school students in an English classroom, a really sacred space. And it's really interesting to be stepping away from that class of 50 and aspiring to teach on a much wider scale. But essentially when I think about how I approach business design, it is about how businesses have the power to not just influence culture, but to elevate understanding. And I'm really so excited to be modeling a new expectations for what businesses should be offering to community. We want quality products. We want great stories, right? We want beautiful experiences, but I really hope that they can inspire some civic engagement. So let's talk about how much you've been really spreading your influence across the city and really taking on new challenges. So this year, you stepped into a new version of yourself with regard to politics. Can you talk about that and why you decided to go there? I think the narrative that I'm telling through Black Ivy is a very particular political worldview. It is in ways radical, it is in ways progressive, but it also aspires to still hold some sense of faith that while our democracy is in a very fragile place, that I still believe in its potential and that I think its preservation will rest on the backs and in the hands of black and white and Jewish and Muslim and Latino and Asian folk who recognize that the only way we're going to move forward is together. They understood that a front line existed, right, conceptually. And that change happens when each of us discovers that that is true and then we move forward towards that front line carrying our gifts and using our time and our talents in collaboration with other people to change the conversation. And hold that line. And to hold that line. And that's really the hardest work. But the legacy work is, is in staying at the line. Right. It's like resting and watering yourself and finding joy and celebrating and, you know, having fun. Right. But understanding that you could be at the front line in a spirit of play and resistance and carrying with you a spirit of tenderness for other people and tenderness for yourself. And that's how we actually stay the course. Going right back to what you said, juntos, decimos, together we decide. As a group, as a people, everybody coming together to figure this out, it's necessary. And we decide in all of our decisions, including where we shop and why we shop there and who we tell about how we spend our money. The loudest thing in a room is a dollar. And your garments are a reflection of what you actually are speaking to. So it's just food for thought, you know? It's just a way of thinking about and analyzing 
um, how we're curating our closets. And I think that in order to persevere through this moment and what comes next, it's gonna require just a lot more loving intention, a way of, in, of giving people open access to a new way of talking about, of experiencing, of learning about how fashion can be a form of activism. So we, you know, when we think about our, our website, we have an interactive timeline of 1954 to 1972, which is an open access tool for people. You know, we think about the privatization of education. What it does is it says, unless you can afford to be educated, then you're forced to kind of be in a state of ignorance. So we're doing, there's a lot, there's a learning guide that I'm so proud of. Uh, that our creative strategist created, Brent Hackett, it's beautiful and it really gives people a, an easy way of, of just learning about the history of fashion and race. Shout out to Kimberly Jenkins, who was, who was also a major part of how that story is being told. So this is a whole community that came together and just in time for Black History Month. Let me tell you, okay? We have folks in Portland who are helping with our branding story. We had these incredible street artists in Philly who were pulling up. We had these activists in fashion in New York who contributed, you know, like, but this is community, right? This is, this is the front line. And even the story of Black Ivy is an interesting one, right? It was a creative expression of black folk during the 60s, largely, particularly black men who were responding to the Ivy League prep culture and putting a lot of sauce on it. Miles Davis was putting sauce on it. John Coltrane was putting sauce on it in music. We had Romare Burdine putting sauce on it in visual arts, right? We had poets putting sauce on it. And I wanted to extend that notion of culture as a way of catalyzing action by housing it in a conversation about fashion. Thank you so much for being here. You're so welcome. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly, at Raquel on Air, and at Shara Day. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>